All right, so soteriology, looking at election. Um, kind of the outline we want to follow today, and we'll see if we make it through. We've got quite a bit of notes to cover. Um, but starting in our introduction, we want to look at some of the major views um, as it relates to election. There's three major views, but then offshoots of each and various other ones. Um, want to talk a little bit about a brief history of the discussion because it has been um, it has been a historical discussion in theology is this topic of election and predestination, which hopefully we'll cover next time. But we'll look at that. And then our goal is just to do some some word studies of the pertinent terms related to election, um, beginning with the Hebrew term bakar, and then we'll look at several Greek terms, um, mostly in the New Testament, and then I think I've got one Septuagint reference, but we'll go and look at those, Lord willing. So that's our goal. We'll see how far we make it through, and just hopefully it can be a profitable discussion. One of the interesting things about the topic of election is sometimes it can be a divisive issue. Um, in churches, but also then in Christendom, there are whole denominations that are split because of their views on this theology, this doctrine, but then also other ones. So, But that's unfortunate because if you look at Paul's approach, one of his greatest adorations of God is God's election, like Ephesians chapter 1, the triune hymn. And what's he started out with? God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So it's something, the doctrine of election is something that should lead us to adoration of God, even if we don't fully understand it, and even if we may disagree on how it works out. And then, as we are led into adoration of God because of understanding his election, or not understanding it, marveling at it, that should then lead us to unity. So that's the goal, is adoration of God that leads to unity with one another, even if there's variety of opinions on it. So, major views is what we want to start out with. Um, There's three major views, and then offshoots of each one, um, various combinations of each one, and I think one of the reasons that this is a doctrine that tends to be debated is just the very fact that it's not explicitly stated exactly how it works. So there is room for variety in our understanding. But the first major view is called foresight election. Um, We talked about that one last week as it was related to foreknowledge. Um, A couple definitions from uh, theologians that take this view. One is named Thiessen. Um, He says, by election... We mean that sovereign act of God in grace, whereby he chose us in Christ Jesus for salvation, all those whom he foreknew would accept him. So election is God's sovereign choice of those whom he foreknew would choose him. Another definition that's similar, those who accept the divine call through the word are in the language of scripture, the elect. Those who accept the divine call to salvation through the word, are in the language of Scripture, the elect. So, kind of to summarize this view, because God foresaw that we would choose him, he chose us. Because God foresaw that we would choose him, he chose us. That's how 
the foresight view of election uh, views it? Because God knew in advance that we would choose him, he chose us. Does that make sense? Um, so in this view, election is conditional. What would be the condition of election according to those definitions? How would you say it? Yeah, something we have to do. Uh, not a work, but faith. Exactly. So that would be the condition, is that God would need to foresee faith in us. Um, so a couple key texts that relate to this view, Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. Remember it says, those whom God foreknew, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. So foreknowledge preceded predestination. And then the one that we looked at last week, 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Remember that? We'll go and look at that one more. Um, but that's the first major view, is foresight election. <coughs> then there's a view called corporate election. So foresight election thinks that election is dealing primarily with individuals. Primarily with individuals. And the goal is God elects for salvation. Does that make sense? So it's individual in its nature, and its goal is uh, salvation. Corporate election, um, and realize this is a, an extreme simplification of these views. I'm not trying to misrepresent them. I'm just trying to simplify for the sake of understanding. But corporate election, um, here's a definition from a guy named Pinnock. Um, he says, election is about God's willing the salvation of all nations, he wants the salvation of all nations and calling and elect people in order to realize it. So this view says election is corporate, not individual. It's not about the individual. It's about the group. And how do we have this group? Well, it's through Christ. Christ is God's chosen one. So like First uh, Peter 2.9, let's go and look at that. That's one of the key texts in this view. Go to First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But several places in the scripture, Luke 9, for instance, the voice comes out of the cloud from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Talks about him being the chosen one. Several places, we'll look at some of these, these texts. But even go to 1 Peter 2, just before we read verse 9, look back at verse 4. It talks about verse 3, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom, the Lord, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. That's the same word, chosen. It's where we get this concept of election. But here it's applied to Christ. So Christ is the chosen one of God. And we've got, oh, probably a dozen texts, maybe a half dozen, that relate to that, of Christ as the chosen one. But then drop down to verse 9. But you, you plural, you are a chosen generation. So you notice they would emphasize this is a corporate election, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And realizing that that language of you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, now it's being applied to Christians by the apostle Peter, but previously it was applied to the nation of Israel back in the covenant. So that's kind of interesting. But this corporate election view, um, at least this guy, Pinnock, he says it's about the group, the body of Christ. And so all who are elect, they're elect because they're in Christ. 
and Christ is the one who is chosen. So they have to be separated from individuals? What do you mean? Well, if it's corporate, does, does that renounce that there's any individual election? You know, I don't know exactly how they put it together. They're emphasizing the corporate election side. Some might say that there's still an individual aspect to it. Let me see. I think I have a quote that applies to that a little bit. Um, well, I don't have the quote, but I can tell you a summary of what he says. He says that individuals are not elect until they come to faith in Christ. And now that they've been added to the body of Christ, now they are, according to the scripture, elect. Because they're included in Christ. But if Christ died, even just for me, if I was the only person on earth, you can't have corporate. Individual, mm -hmm. only. individual only? Yeah, if, if I was the only person on earth and God, Jesus died just for me, <coughs> and me only, mm -hmm. the only person on earth, then it wouldn't be corporate. It would be individual. So then that's where I throw in Israel. <laughs> Being elected mm -hmm. Yep. And it's interesting because what we see of Israel is distinct from what we see of the church. Because Israel as a nation was elect, but that didn't mean all of Israel was saved. So there's some variety in how the term is used. And we want to talk more about that as we go. But, Ashley? The method of salvation, yeah. Um, actually, it's really helpful to go back to Genesis even, which precedes the Mosaic Covenant, because um, some people do. They take the view that Israel was saved by keeping the commandments. Um, however, that differs from what the covenant was actually designed to do. Um, so if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Um, it's going to talk about Abraham's salvation. So when in there was Abraham saved? Um, that's a good question. People debate it, but then, so you would want to cross-reference like Genesis 12 through 22 with Romans 4 and James chapter 2. Romans 4 and James chapter 2, because Paul and James both cite the same verse um, in the book of Genesis. Here, sorry, I'm trying to find it here. Um, so Romans chapter 4, Paul's making the point that justification is by faith, not by works. And so then he cites... Um, he cites Abraham as an example of that because Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, however Abraham was saved, the rest of Israel would be saved. So Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh is found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory or to boast, but not before God. For what says the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that little kernel there, that is the core of what salvation is from Adam all the way until the end. It's never been works that could save anyone, even Israel. 
Instead, the covenant was to say, okay, now if you believe God, you have faith and loyalty toward God, show it in your lives, and then Israel was to be, as God's covenant people, the light to the nations, to say, so that they would say, wow, what a wise and understanding God Israel has. But James 2, 21 does the same, same thing about Abraham. That's right. Not justified by works. Yep. So Romans 4, James 2, and then that, he's citing from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where God has promised um, that he would give him a son. He says, hey, I'm childless. How are you going to make me into a great nation? And God says, look at the stars in the heaven, and so shall your seed be. And then Genesis 15, 6, and he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So back, if you're still in Romans 4, let me find the verse. It's just a little later. Oh, there it is. Romans 4.21. It's probably one of my favorite scriptural definitions of faith. Verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So it's God makes a promise and we take him at his word. That's what faith is and that's what saves. Does that help? Yep. Yeah. No, that's good. So if you, if you, as you comb through the scriptures, God's goal is always the nations. Um, so Abrahamic covenant. God selects Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of the nations. And he says, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. Through you and through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Abraham had to believe in God. Yep. So pre-Jesus, people just had to believe in God. I, I know this is all kind of, we don't have this, like, concretely. But pre-Jesus, everyone had to believe in God. Post-Jesus, the scriptures all support no one could come to God except through Jesus. Correct. So is it just a matter of us being on the timeline? <laughs> like, we're here so we go through Jesus? Or... No, that's good. Yeah, so it was always about the nations, and that's why God selected Abraham and then Israel, through whom the Messiah could come, who could deliver Israel, but also the nations. But go ahead, Sarah. I've always seen it like Abraham, this is what God told Abraham, this is what Abraham believed about the God of the Bible. It wasn't just anybody on the planet believing there was a God, it was believing God's promise that he gave. Out of the Bible gave. So, 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 so,
and then all the way through, you know, as he gave more revelations throughout the years, then Jesus, you know, was the ultimate revelation. So then you just following God's promise and his story uh, as you go through history is what gave you salvation, <coughs> not keeping the law. Right. Are you going to say something, Dan? Well, there's always the promise just from the beginning, mm-hmm. 3.15 of Genesis, yep. is that he's going to send his son, the root. And even through Genesis, even it talks about the root that shall come out. You know, there's always, they're always yep. pointing toward Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so shadowed references to Christ all throughout the Old Testament. Did they understand that they were pointing to Christ? Not, not a lot of times. Now, in hindsight, it's a lot easier. We see, oh, that was speaking of Christ, the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. Eve thought it was Seth well, or Cain before him. The prophets had the Septuagint, so they must have known that there was something coming like mm-hmm. Jesus. Oh. Oh. There was a definite messianic expectation and anticipation that there's someone coming. And so I'm thinking that because of that, Expected promise that the prophets were chosen as prophets because they had that strong belief that it wasn't just God, it was something more. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't think they're more than God, but something of God. Yeah, of yeah, God. yep. And it's interesting because as you work, Romans is kind of Paul's trying to help us understand this. So as you work later in it, it talks, oh, let me find it. Sorry, earlier, just a little bit before that, he talks about how God had, in times past, overlooked sins. So like the blood of bulls and goats could never permanently solve sin. It covered it. But then, that's why Christ came. So the people of the Old Testament were saved because they trusted God's promises that he made to them with an understanding there was promises that God would someday ultimately deal with sin. They might not have understood all of how it would work. Most of them didn't. But that's why Christ came. He deals with our sin because we look back on the sacrifice of Christ and we trust him, and so our sins are forgiven. But they were looking forward to someone who would come. Maybe they didn't understand all of it, but that's how God is just. He didn't just overlook those sins and never deal with them, but they're the sins of those who trusted God's promises prior to Christ are forgiven because Christ was going to and now has paid for them. Does that help a little bit? It does, yeah. It's, it's, I, I get hung up on that part, but it does help. Maybe we should add it to our uh, key questions for, the, for soteriology because salvation of Old Testament saints is important. And it's debated a little bit. Or at least misunderstood. Sounds like fun. I added it to our key questions. Maybe we'll address it as we get to the true nature of faith. It's good. No, amen. It's good. So that's kind of corporate election. And then at least Pinnock, I don't know that this is representative of all people who hold to the view of corporate election, but at least Pinnock, 
he says, okay, it's conditional on your being included in the body of Christ through faith, salvation. But then he would say the goal of it is actually missiology of missions, the Great Commission, so that because now we're included in the body of Christ, God's purpose that all nations would come to him, even though not everyone from all nations will, so then God's purpose to make a people for himself would be then that we go and tell other people so that they could be part of this corporately elected body. Does that make a little bit of sense? It's a harder view to nail down. One guy who kind of popularized the view back um, a while back, his name was Karl Barth, um, not necessarily a theologian that you want to get all your theology from. He had some decent stuff, but he basically used this view to teach universalism, that because God wanted all nations to be saved, eventually all people would be part of this elect. So that's a dangerous view, um, unscriptural, heretical, because there are people in hell right now who, because they rejected Christ, they are not elect. But anyway, so that's view number two. Then view number three is called, there's many names for it, but individual pre-temporal election. And those are Charles Ryrie's words. We've quoted Ryrie before, but he wrote that um, systematic theology book called Basic Theology. So those are his words, individual pre-temporal. So he's trying to distinguish it from the other couple of views. Um, Louis Burkhoff was a famous <clears throat> Reformed theologian. He defined election this way, that eternal act of God whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and of eternal salvation. And then just a much simpler definition of that, election is God's choice of those whom he would save. So in other words, foresight election says God chose us because he foresaw that we would choose him. Individual pretemporal election flips that. It would say we chose God because God in eternity past chose us. Does that make sense? At its, that's the very simplest way I know how to say it, to distinguish it. Obviously, it's a, an extreme oversimplification. But, go ahead. Uh, sorry, which one? That most recent definition? Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff. Yeah, B-E-R-K-H-O-F. Yeah, so our documentation says um, that we will not have any teaching characteristic of the Reformed movement. So that third view is characteristic of the third movement. Third movement. Sorry, that third view is characteristic of the Reformed movement. There we go. So Pastor Jeff, <clears throat> he just most recently taught in Ephesians chapter 1. His view is that number one, um, foresight election, that God foresaw the faith of those who would believe on Christ, and so therefore, in eternity past, he elected them. And how does he bring in Israel being elected as a nation? That's a good question. I don't know. Yep, I don't know. We'll have to ask him. But this individual pretemporal, I can ask him. It's, it's hard because the election of Israel 
is different in its nature because the election of individuals seems to be unto salvation. Individuals in the church age in our understanding of this. Right, but the election for Israel did not eventuate in everyone's salvation. It was they were chosen as a nation. But it was chosen as a nation to have salvation, which chose not to have salvation. Right. Maybe that's a way to put it. Warren? Um, there's some support for beyond individual salvation to scriptures. New Testament to talk about a family mm-hmm. where if, if the father or the parent or whatever is following God, then through his service of God and everything will be reflected on his family. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a, a, I don't want to call it universal salvation, but it's a, it's a, a multiple salvation through that. So do we dispense with it by saying, because he's a good man or a good woman who's leading his family, he's going to teach them about Jesus and they're going to accept him? Or do we say there actually is some merit to to salvation more than just an individual but toward others? Oh, that's a good question. So like Acts 16 would be a good example of that. The Philippian jailer. Remember at the end of that story, Acts 16.31, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it says, we often leave off the end of that. But it says, and your house. And then that's how the story goes. The Philippian jailer believes and his household is converted. So does that mean that all of them believed? Could be that's maybe what it's saying. Another way to, that some people would look at it because the man of the house believed, the rest of the household is now saved. Um, or like you said. Weren't you referring to it? I think it's an act. I can't find it. But that's where you talk about how wise be submissive to your husband's husband, blah, blah, blah. And you may turn your husband to mm-hmm. the and vice versa. And then that comes along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the that you might win them by a good conversation. That's in First Peter chapter two, I believe. It seems like that that kind of reasoning is just going. We're going. We have this point of view, and we're going to dispense with that scripture and reinterpret it so that it fits our mm-hmm. view. <laughs> sure. And our view is that individuals become. Christians rather than families. Mm-hmm. Where this point says, your family's going to be safe. You accept Christ, your family's going to be safe. That's the basic thing the Bible says. So do we deny that and kind of, because we don't like that idea of family being saved? Mm-hmm. For example, it's from the Old Testament, but we have examples of families where even though the father was a believer, it didn't mean all his children were. I'm thinking of the patriarchs. Abraham. Isaac is saved. Ishmael's not. Isaac, his sons. Jacob is saved. Esau, probably not. So, go ahead, Sarah. Um, so, when, and I'm, I don't know if I'm just weird, but when I look at all three, I see that there's merit with each one. <coughs> In my brain, I try to balance them because truth out of balance And so when it comes to corporate election, um, so the family, the father's saved, and in some ways the children benefit from their salvation because mm-hmm. they're following God's principles. If um, when America was following God's principles, it wasn't that everybody in America was saved and going to heaven, but the entire country 
was saved in a way because they were benefiting from the blessings of following God's word. So, so with Israel, those that were following God's rules, you know, there was blessings in there. And then um, with the foresight election, God knew us mm-hmm. um, and knew it was going to happen because we all agree with that. So God knew it was going to happen. He knew who was going to choose him, so he yep. chose us. And then with the individual, the same thing goes. You know, We love him because he first loved us. So in some ways, I don't know, my brain just says it. I don't necessarily want to hang my hat too heavily on any one point. I try to balance it because it seems in the scripture that there is a balancing of the ideas. Could, could you say it's, it's more like, particularly in the United States, it's criminal reform. There was many people who believed in God. Yet because of all those people who believed in Jesus in the founding of our country and in the few years afterwards, we were we had access to the blessings that came from that rather than salvation. Well I'm not saying salvation into heaven was for everyone, but there are blessings from that. Um, Dave Ramsey, he gets all of his money principles straight from the Bible. You don't have to be a Christian to follow the money principles or be wise mm-hmm. in that way. So there are blessings when you follow God. And I think that's how he deals with the planet. And he is concerned with the nations and their, you know, eternal salvation. But he also wants the world to work the way he designed it to work. And so if you follow those things, saved or unsaved, there's certain things that are going to happen. And, you know, but at the same time, there's also the individual that's responsible before him. Although Tim is responsible for the whole family. And, you know, if I'm a rebellious terrible wife, he's actually going to suffer for it before God because he's responsible for the family. Here's so there's, there always seems to be a balancing that God here's, here's, a, here's a harder question for you. If that's true, is it real? are they really experiencing the blessings of God because if they're not Christians <coughs> and they're doing the principles right, is it really God's, God blessing them? If you use a watch watch correctly, (coughs) you know, if you use the watch correctly, the watch is going to work. If you take and smash the watch, the watch isn't going to work. So if God designed the rules by which the world works and you follow those rules, you're blessed and your crops grow. But is it God's blessing? Well, it is because he's done it. Has God promised to give you blessings because you follow principles? Yeah. I mean, there's situations where where legalism prevails, and if you follow all the rules, then you're going to get the blessings. But it may does. not it may not necessarily be God blessing you. Right. He, he does bless you if you follow the rules, whether you're saved or unsaved. If you don't commit adultery, you have a blessing. If you don't murder, you have a blessing. You know, you're not going to go to heaven just because you don't murder, but there is a blessing. Mm-hmm. It rains on the just and the unjust. Yeah. Yeah. That's Matthew 5:45. Well, okay, I so, anyway, I just so I look at these now. sinners. I look at these sinners that are doing really well financially. I say, man, there's God's blessing on them, <laughs> and they didn't even have to accept Christ. But if they're following the rules that He used, and so they're if, being blessed that way, then yeah, they're not stealing. I'm saying if you isolate it and you say, oh, here's the blessing. This guy's rich because he follows the rules and the principles, but he's not a Christian. Is it God blessing him because he's following the rules? But the old Israelites used to believe the rich man was being blessed by God Mm -hmm. rather than him maybe being evil and getting his riches. Yeah. Tim? Be careful there. So when our kids are born, they're not saved. Whether, you know, my wife and I, our parents are, if they're saved, 
they're supposed to be telling their kids the law at first, because even uh, Ephesians 6 says, children obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, but promise. He's telling them, you know, um, <clears throat> that you may that you may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. That's a commandment promise. That's not anything that has to do with being saved. So we have to teach the kids the law first before we can teach their hearts about Christ and stuff. And so they're following, if they're following the commandments, you know, honor your father and mother with, according to the commandment, they're going to live long on the earth, you know. But we have to teach them later, obviously. Um, it says, you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But I have to teach them the commandment first. And to say, they have to know the law, which is to bring them to salvation first, you know, that they are doing wrong. Yeah. But it's obeying the commandment. I mean, that's what I see there. But you make a good point, Warren, that true blessing really can only come on those who are saved. There's not true, God doesn't smile on the wicked. And that's Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. He says, hey, God's good to Israel, but I was really struggling. I'm summarizing. I was really struggling because I looked at the wicked and I saw that they were prospering. They were rich. They were well fed. They had more than I had. And I was trying to do what God said, but they were experiencing what seems to be blessing. And he works through that and he says, Essentially, this was too hard of a thought for me to think about. It was painful until I went into the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. And he talks about their feet are set in slippery places. They might seem to be prospering now and having, quote unquote, God's blessing, but eventually judgment's coming for them because they do not believe God. And they're not truly obeying God. Maybe they're living life God's way. And so because living life God's way results in temporal quote-unquote blessing as in prosperity like following Dave Ramsey's principles if you follow his principles because they're biblical principles and God's principles you're probably going to do decently financially but Asaph kind of concludes that and says judgment is coming for them and even though they seem to be prospering now I don't want their end instead I'm going to trust God with what God's given me I'm going to obey him and Enjoy eternity, God's eternal blessing. You put out a limb. You're saying someone could say, "Hey, look at me! I'm I'm being blessed." Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't believe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you can observe them from the outside and say, "Well, it's because they're honest, because they're diligent." You know, I mean, these kinds of things that, that God says to do. But the reality is, there there is a result in the way they're doing it. But it's not God's blessing on them, is it? Well, do blessings come from somewhere other than God? I mean, what, what if they're what if they're running a, a porn store or something, you know, and they're very diligent and they do all their accounting properly, they pay all their taxes, they're very they're very effective in their marketing, and you and they become rich. Wouldn't Satan fall in there somewhere? <laughs> Are no. you going to say that's God's blessing on them? because they're following those principles. That's the problem I see. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it's just a distinguishment of how you use the term. Yeah. Sari's point seems to be, and mm -hmm. Tim's point, this is common grace. From living life God's way, there is just a general 
um, I don't know another word besides blessing, a generic blessing in life, a prosperity, a temporal um, life seems to go your way. But your point is exactly well made of we can't equate temporal prosperity with the genuine blessing of God. That's right. That's what we're working on in teens is Obadiah. Because Edom chose not to bless their brother Israel, they enjoy God's cursing. But there is a generic blessing, but then the special blessing of God, yeah, you're right, is reserved for believers. Sorry? I was trying to get to the the point holding it in balance. Mm -hmm. You tip it too far one way, like even what I said about the blessing, if you tip it too far, it's wrong. Even with these three, I, I see a balancing of them because you go with a corporate election, sure, mm-hmm. but there you tip it way too far, then you're going to be off balance. Right. And, uh, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. It's good. So a balance in our theology. Good. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of Satan and how he's made riches even for all sins for Jesus. This mm-hmm. kingdom is all yours, all the wealth is involved with everything. Yeah. So Satan often has a role in people's wealth. But because they act like good people mm-hmm. on this TV, they think it's God. Yeah. It's not really Satan that's working in their lives. Yep. It's good. Maybe we'll leave that where it is, but Job would be another good example that mm-hmm. just because life's not going well mm-hmm. doesn't mean God's not blessing. Mm-hmm. But let's do this. Let's look up some scripture. <laughs> well. He did, but that was his that was his buddy's point was you've sinned and you need to confess your sin and Job's like, I haven't. This isn't because I've sinned. But we can go and read Job another time. Let's let's uh let's see. Let's just get some scripture in our heads. Um I'm debating which one we want to go to. Let's go 1 Peter chapter 1 again. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll get that one fill in our minds. And then I just want to talk for a couple minutes and at least make it through the history of the of election because that will set us up well to start our word studies next week. So 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> and I chose this one because it involves both election and foreknowledge like what we had. Let we, what we're, words are hard like what we had last week. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So we've got this, they are elect according to the standard of the basis is the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so this whole debate centers around what is that foreknowledge and then in what way are they elect. So let's look at, let's look at one more and then we'll talk history. 
Let's do, let's do Ephesians 1. And this one's fresh because pastor's working on it right now in morning service. It's perfect. So Ephesians chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Accepted in the beloved. Okay, so to Sari's point, we get some, uh, some echoes of several of these views. Okay, he says, according as he has chosen us in him. That's in Christ. The him is referring to Christ. Well, that sounds like corporate election. Christ is elect, so because we're in Christ, we're chosen in him. Before the foundation of the world. Well, that sounds a lot like view three, pre-temporal. It's before the foundation of the world. But then the purpose. He chose us in Christ prior to the foundation of the world. Why? So that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. Um, God's method. How did, he take, how did this take effect? Well, he predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. What was the standard? It was according to the good pleasure of his will. So that's interesting. Cross-reference that with 1 Peter 1. There he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Here he says, elect, or chosen, and we'll look at this next week, but these are the same words. Chosen and elect, those are just synonyms. But he says, according to the good pleasure of his will, here. 1 Peter 1, according to the foreknowledge of God. Here, according to the good pleasure of his will. And the purpose, verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace. But then, as he says, he's made us accepted in the beloved. So again, we have this corporate aspect that because Christ is the beloved, he's the chosen, and because we're in him, now we're also beloved, we're accepted, and we're chosen. Interesting. So there's, there's a point to be made of holding these things and trying to hold it in balance. And that's the challenge of doing systematic theology, is we're trying to systematize truth. But God didn't review it, reveal his truth in a systematized format like we try to make it. It's in this context, Ephesians chapter 1, case in point. Because then what comes after Ephesians 1? Well, Ephesians 2, of course. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. So there's both aspects represented in Ephesians. Let's do a one-minute history of this doctrine because the history, I think, is really helpful and I can give you my notes and, um, you know, other references to trace it down. But there's three big periods of history that I listed on your sheet. And then in addition to that, obviously, there's modern or contemporary theology. But starting with patristic theology, these are the guys right after the apostles, that next generation for the first 400 years of church history. Famous guys like Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement, Origen, Athanasius, 
Augustine, he technically falls in this. Um, the theological debates in those first 400 years largely centered around the person of Christ. Who is he? Is he God or is he less than God? Those were what those first 400 years of church history were debating. And then Augustine, um, he had a guy named Pelagius. We'll talk about that one. I'll save that because we just want to get the election history for now. Medieval theology was about 400 A.D. to 1500 A.D. Um, you've got guys like John of Damascus, Anselm of Canterbury, Thomas Aquinas, the famous Catholic theologian. Um, during this medieval time, it centered around, okay, is man capable of positively responding to God on their own? Or do they need um, God's grace in order even to receive Christ? And that's a debate that started with Augustine. We'll talk more about that. Then you get to the Reformation, and this is where election and predestination became a debate. So you have Martin Luther starts it, 1517, the um, 75 Theses nailed to the door, the Wittenberg Church. You've got guys like John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon, Menno Simons, who was an Anabaptist, Jacobus or James Arminius. Um, he is where we get Arminian theology. And then Jonathan Edwards. So this Reformation starts this debate. John Calvin emphasizes predestination, but it wasn't his primary emphasis. He actually, what um, John Calvin gave to us as it relates to soteriology, is distinguishing justification from sanctification. So justification is you're declared righteous at the moment of faith, but then sanctification is growth in the righteousness. And John Calvin gave us that. He mentioned predestination, but then his follower, after he dies, Theodore Beza, um, he replaced Calvin at the Academy of Geneva, and he taught an extreme view of predestination. Essentially that before the fall of Adam, God foreordained some for eternal life and some for eternal damnation. That's the extreme view of Calvinism. Uh, the extreme view of predestination, rather. Because that's not what Calvin even taught. A lot of people misunderstand what John Calvin or Jacobus Arminius taught. But essentially, the debate surrounds, as it relates to election, we can talk more about the rest of it later, is it conditional, conditioned on our faith, or is it unconditional, just because of the good pleasure of his will? So that's the debate between Arminianism, its foreknowledge of our faith, and Calvinism, election based on God's good pleasure. So... Okay, sorry, it was a three-minute history. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, Beza, let me grab his first name so I don't say it. Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza, B-E-Z-A. Yeah, it's good. They didn't necessarily maybe have faith in God because they were created not. Yep. God. Yeah, and we will look at those texts, but there is some distinctions in the way the terms are used. Yeah. 